You're listening to Michael Easley in Context, and today we have a very special Christmas episode for you with Michael W. Smith. And if you can believe it, this episode was actually recorded in 2019, which seems so long ago at this point. But I think you'll find that the conversation that Michael W. Smith and Michael Easley have is just as relevant now as it would have been in 2019. And you'll get to enjoy some great Christmas music from Michael W. Smith, as well as just hearing his heart behind writing music for Christmas songs and writing music for the body to worship in general. So we hope you enjoy and Merry Christmas. When you read the Psalms, we have a section called the Ascent Psalms. These were song, poem, hymns that Israel used as they went up to worship. When we take people to Israel, we often talk about you always go up to worship. No matter it was north, south, east, or west, when you went up to Jerusalem, you're going up spiritually, metaphorically, to worship God. And they would sing what we might call the top hymns or the top songs of the day. I think it's hard for us as Americans, as Westerners, to think about hymnology and worship and music because we're consumers. And if we go back to the Old Testament to think through how the whole art of hymnology and worship began, the idea of David setting up a whole tribe of priests to lead in worship and singing the Psalter, of course, in many songs. It's a privilege, it's a blast, it's fun today to be talking to Michael W. Smith. Thanks for taking some time. You're welcome. Thank you. It's so great. Many would look at your career, your history of music, and I think those of us who followed you and grown up with your lyric and song, you had this thing wired in you, hardwired. It's about worship probably more than anything else. Worship sort of evolved inside of me over the years, really figuring out really what that was. I always thought it was just about music, and it's sort of been redefined inside of me as I've gotten older and hopefully gotten a little wiser. I sort of consider worship as a lifestyle. Don't necessarily equate that to just what happens on just a Sunday morning. Just singing in a corporate gathering yeah, isn't just worship, it, right? No, it's loving my wife and loving my kids and my grandkids and hopefully loving my neighbor and making life better for people that I'm in relationship with. And so all that, you know, but obviously music is a big part of it as well. And me being a, a lead worshiper, a writer of those kind of songs, those vertical songs, then obviously there's a little bit more anchor there in terms of maybe not your everyday people, but people who write those songs and enjoy leading worship. That's a real privilege for me. Let's talk about Christmas, because uh, many folks know you for your four Christmas albums and box sets that you've packaged. What was the first Christmas song you wrote? You know what? I think it was either All Is Well or Gloria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Might have been All Is Well. Was there some catalyst in your, you know, singing obviously familiar Christmas songs and hymns and worship said, I want to write something that's Christmas oriented? Was it a time for Michael W. Smith to do a Christmas album? Yeah. Yes, for sure. And 
obviously you don't want any Christmas record to be probably all new. People love familiarity. I mean, they just do. But it's a challenge to write something that sounds like it was written a few centuries ago, you know. Um, that was a very special record because it was the first time I really sort of kind of, you know, I just didn't have to have my pop hat on, you know, and be able to let all this stuff that had been inside of me for many, many years to sort of come out and you didn't have to think about radio and you didn't have to think about is it contemporary and all the stuff that I hate that I even thought about it then. I don't do much of that these days. But all this classical, this my lover of classical music and Handel's Messiah and Bach and all that sort of thing. And so to be able to write things that kind of really felt a little out of the ordinary was really fun to sort of let all that go. First of all, Christmas is my favorite time of the year, and I love making Christmas music. I really do. And All Is Well is my favorite song I think I've ever written. Thanks to in Wayne. three minutes. Well, the music in three minutes. Right. And I was just going to let it be an instrumental, but the more and more I thought about it, I thought it needs a lyric. And thank God for Wayne Kirkpatrick, you know, who he's the guy I wrote all these pop songs with in the early days. And I just had an inclination, something inside of me going, Wayne's your guy. And he penned this amazing lyric. And I get chills every night that I do all this mm. well. My second maybe favorite Christmas song that I've ever written is a song called The Promise. And it is just so, it's not the standard music. It's got classical, it's got a little bit of pop in it, and it's big chorale, choir, and big orc. I'm hearing all this in my head. And then the way I lay the whole thing out, it's a little complicated, but it's not too complicated. And when I wrote this crazy thing and singing all these da 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 it's really odd. And I could not find anybody to nail it on the head. Just, yeah, it was a bit of a disaster. And I won't tell you who those songwriters are. But I called my son, Ryan, who's a filmmaker and a great writer. And he's a consumer of deep, deep theological books. He loves Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and all these people. But he just, he's a poet. And so I gave the melody to him. And I'm going, hey, do you want to take a stab at this? And he said, yeah, yeah, Dad, yeah, Dad, I'll, I'll look at it, you know. And the next day, he sends me this lyric. And I get chills when mm. I think about it and when I sing it, because it really encompasses the whole of what Christmas is all about. I mean, it just does it in like three verses. And I can still quote it, but it's, Fear not, O Israel, for, for there, there is peace still to come. Still to come. To break the silence, a promise yet to bloom. A promise to redeem us, one to free us. Break the silence in the violence in our lives. Emmanuel is sure to find us soon. The mighty root of Jesse's star of truth And bring our sons to glory Tell his story Heal the broken And restore thee to his name The star will guide us to the humble place Where Christ the King reveals his earthly and we will see Emmanuel 
All I had was, we're singing hallelujah. That's all I had. We're singing hallelujah, Emmanuel. Our God is with us. That's all I had, you know. But I knew, just the way it is, I'm not prolific like he is. I knew that I did not have the capacity to write what I was feeling. I'm not a wordsmith like Ryan is. And so thank God I called my son. And uh, it's powerful every night, especially when we're doing it with a 65-piece orchestra and you've got 300 people singing. It's, uh, yeah, the chills. I get chills now just thinking about it. So that's probably my second favorite Christmas song I've written. I know um, artists and writers don't like the question, but uh, was there a harder song to write and an easier song to write when you think about your Christmas hymns and songs and Gloria? And I don't know if there was a hard song to write. I mean, anytime that you strive to write something, it's usually a disaster, you know. <laughs> um, For the first to how many iterations? Yeah, yeah, and I've just learned not to fight it. You know, just if it's not happening, just turn the keyboard off and go play around a golf or something. You know what I'm saying? Just back away from it and don't push it, you know. So I don't know if there was necessarily a hard song to write because a lot of these melodies, are they come naturally. I think when it comes to the lyrics, then maybe that's where it gets hard that you just want the lyric to be so right on and mm-hmm. not sound like anything else. So, But I'm just trying to think if there was a hard song to write, nothing really comes to mind. You know? okay. When you say easy... I mean, I wrote all as well in three minutes, the melody. It just sort of happened. Gloria just sort of just, you know, fell out of the sky. I always kind of make that analogy. I mean, they just fly out of the sky and I just catch them. Those two songs fell out of the sky. Influential Christmas, you mentioned Bach and Handel's Messiah and so forth. Uh, Other influential voices in your heart and mind when you think back on Christmas music? Well, it was more the fun Christmas music. It was more like Andy Williams and Barbara Streisand. And uh, the Andy Williams Christmas record is still my favorite Christmas record of all time. Yeah, his voice, there's something Uh about his voice. You know, back in the day, I didn't know anything about really serious Christmas music other than Handel's Messiah, if I can put it that way. It was more, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and, you know, Jim Neighbors and all those people. Gomer Pyle. Yeah, Gomer Pyle. But you would have these big, you know, Eugene Ormandy and the Philharmonic Orchestra playing these big, big, massive orchestrations, instrumental only of, you know, Angels We Have Heard on High and Hark the Herald Angels Sing and Joy to the World and... Man, I just ate that stuff up. And even as a kid, when I was all grown up listening to all those LPs, I don't know if you heard me say this before, but Goodyear Tire Store and Firestone Tire Store used to sell a Christmas LP every year for a dollar. And on those records were all these compilation of all these artists, Mm -hmm. some of which I mentioned, and Tony Bennett and the list goes on. And I listened to those records over and over and over again. So even as a kid, even at 10, I remember looking at my sister because, we, you know, we pulled the Christmas records out September 1st <laughs> and, and put them up around January 5, you know. You and my son-in-law would get longer. Yeah, it, just, it was <laughs> just so early. fun. But I remember telling my sister, I said, you know what, if I ever get a record deal one day, I'm going to make a Christmas album, you know. 
And I would have these certain ones that I'm going to do that song and I'm going to re-record that song, which I have. So, And your schedule uh, during December is crazy. It's a little crazy. It's a little crazy. Do you have any idea how many concerts you do or you just show up? No, well, I, at some point I count them, <laughs> and I think this tax year, time you look back, and go, how many times was I on the road? Yeah, yeah, I think it was nineteen this year. 19. Not too bad, you know. One a day, typically. Well, do some matinees. that's not my call. I mean, I would say this is the most brutal year I've ever had. You know, when you're doing nine shows in ten days, that's just such a brutal schedule. And then uh, my great friend, President George Bush, and singing at his funeral. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had those three days off, and I really didn't have the three days off. But you know what? I needed to be there, and I sang one of his favorite songs of mine. And if I heard correctly, you weren't feeling too well. I was a little... uh, Under the weather? Yeah, I was just tired. You know, just just tired. But no one would have known it. Well, I hope not. Other than your your handlers, right? Like, oh, Michael's... Yeah. So when I was in a church in Northern Virginia... Washington, D.C. area, we did Christmas pageants and Easter pageants, and they were, you know, monstrous. Mm. They The choirs and orchestras practiced for months and Saturdays and Wednesdays, and then you had dress rehearsals and so forth and so on. And uh, it was one of those times where, as a pastor, it's like, you love doing it because you got 11 Easter concerts, pageants, and maybe nine Christmas musicals, I forget. But you also had this dread. It's just so much it's work. Lot, it's a lot of work. Yeah. And yet you're trying to help God's people, right? and you're trying to sing Christmas songs or Easter songs. Do you ever have that battle going on with you when you're, I mean, 19 concerts? Are you able to stay in, in form and go, okay, I'm doing this for the right reasons, Lord? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You have to remember this is going to be, even though you've done eight in a row, this is going to be maybe somebody's first encounter. Mm-hmm with a real Jesus, you know. So you can't forget that God's got a plan for this night in Pennsylvania, and you got to give it 110%. So When you're done, are you, like, spent and shot and want to crawl into the bed, or are you kind of wired and keyed up after the concert? I'm, I'm wired and keyed, keyed up. up, yeah. How long does it take you to sort of get a breath and go, okay? At least a couple hours. A couple hours. <laughs> and you're getting on the bus with, you know, your crew, your people, and— you know, they're all pumped. Everybody's yeah, excited. Right. So you just kind of, we don't debrief. We just sort of just enjoy being together. And But when I go down, I go down pretty hard. So, <laughs> I bet. <yeah. laughs> Wake up the next day. Let's talk a little bit about corporate worship, because I know this is a big concern of yours, surrounded, of course, mm-hmm. as a pastor all these years, watching contemporary Christian music. I call it the I, me, my music. It's all about I, me, my, as opposed yeah. to, you used the word vertical earlier, doxologies that were orthodox, they were focusing on God, his attributes, his character, mm-hmm. his accomplishments, maybe petitions, maybe laments, maybe like the Psalter. Right. But you've had some you know, passions in this area and concerns. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I do have some concerns. I always have to sort of put those concerns and really let me face the mirror first. Mm. I certainly don't want to be critical. I just think we can do better. And I do have a problem with a lot of the me stuff, you know, that's more focused on us. And um, I think we can just write better songs, you know. And when I say all that, I've I've written my share of not-so-good worship songs. And, um, <laughs> and hopefully you learn. You learn, you yeah. learn from that going, God, well, I wish I could redo that one over mm-hmm. again, you know. But, yeah, so I'm just trying to challenge myself, and I'm trying to—I read a lot of the Psalms, 
it's probably my other than the New Testament, the Gospels. Um, it's probably the book. I mean, mm-hmm. the Psalms is probably the most read book of the Bible, and you're probably not surprised at that as being a songwriter and. I love the honesty of David and just love that, gosh, everything's great, and God, you're a man. And then all of a sudden, God, where are you? Mm-hmm. Know, he's like, ah, the, the up and the struggle and the tug, and I just love the brutal honesty of that. And so it certainly resonates with my heart. I often say the Psalter covers every human emotion you could define, yep. and at the same time, as a worship experience, whether it's David or an unknown author, the Hebrew language and the structure, the Western mind can't wrap their head around what's actually happening in those Psalters. And um, when you go to Israel, I know you've been there many times, and you hear some of the ways things are sung in Israel uh, by Messianic Jews or just Jews who love the Psalter, it changes the paradigm for me because there's, I hate the word holiness, but there seems to be a more of a holy attitude that I'm worshiping Yahweh Elohim here. This isn't just I'm singing and happy and this is great, but I really am worshiping this eternal sovereign God. Anyway, I find it interesting that the Psalter is so comprehensive, and many of them, as you know, end without an answer. Right. There's a petition that has no resolve, or it's an imprecation, God, destroy my enemy, which is a dicey prayer to pray. Right. I'm glad you love it, because some of the worship leaders I interact with, it's like they don't really understand the value they could glean from just soaking in the Psalms. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. No, it's good. When you... Talk, let's say, some young worship leaders or imagine there's 100 young worship leaders out here that you're giving a workshop or you're doing like a writing session with them. How would you encourage them, whether it's Christmas music or writing music or leading a congregation, Mm -hmm. uh, some fellowship? How do you help them learn to worship and lead worship? Yeah. Wow. Where would I start? Maybe the first thing I would say, hey, guys, it's not about you, you know. You've got to learn how to disappear on the stage. You know, your goal as a worship leader, I think, ultimately, is to create an atmosphere where God and you and these people can have a meeting together. That's really, I think, your goal as a worship leader. And you've got to do everything to protect that. You know, and we've got lots of obstacles and lots of things that can be distracting and we got a big light show, and we got cameras everywhere, and all that sort of thing that I think can be a distraction. So you got to somehow break through that and keep it real, and certainly keep the focus off of yourself, and just try to just guide people into the throne room of God. And when the presence of God comes, things happen, and I love when things happen. <laughs> when you think of a theology of worship, would you take a run at defining that? My only theology would be, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think you—I hate to refer to a book, but I am reading a book that's sort of changing my life, and it's this new Timothy Keller book just on prayer. And I also go back to my little Swindoll book called Intimacy with the Almighty. Almighty. And I just—I want to be one of the deep people, and I don't feel like I've been one of those guys. I've wanted to be, and now in this interview, I think I might be getting to be one of the deep people. You know, where you get to a place where, and I think I can get there, I know I can, that he just consumes everything, your day, your thought life. You're less distracted. You Mm. just dwell in the presence of God just 24-7. I think there's a way to do that. And I experienced that on this little sabbatical that I had away, and I experienced some bliss 
kind of that I'd never experienced before, you know, and it was pretty awesome. So didn't mean to go off down that road, but trying to give you my theology, I think it's loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and being consumed with what he wants to really do with you. Yeah. And so I still have a lot of questions that I don't have answers to, but I feel like I'm off to a good start on this next chapter of my life. When um, I look back on somewhat similar preaching for almost 38 years, 40 years now, what I worried about and focused on in the early decade, you know, I'm glad those sermons were on cassettes and they've all decomposed. (laughs) 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 One of my professors said, write your position papers in pencil, gentlemen. Um, And as you grow and mature, you find out what's more important. And it's not just what Michael W. Smith likes to sing or enjoys, but saying, how, God, do I use these gift, talents, and abilities to minister to your people? Mm -hmm. And in preaching, one of the if I can draw on your growing up in a sense, maturing more and more, I hope we all are. We never stop growing. But are there like some things you could tick off, two or three attitudes you had when you were younger and now as you think, I'm a little more mature as I write these lyrics? Or the goal is a little different than it was when I was 30 and yeah. sort of performing versus leading worship and entertaining versus you know, engaging, however you might. Yeah. You know, I think all that stuff has to do with pride. Pride is the root, really, of everything that's wrong with the world. And so I find myself less prideful. I find myself less interested in what I really don't care what people think about Mm me. I'm sure I'm not totally there, but I've never been in a better place when it comes to, like, if I get another reward, great. If I don't, I don't really care. So I think it's God working inside of Mm -hmm. me. And so when you don't, have to focus on that and your energy is trying to impress people and make sure that everybody knows who I am. I think it does something to you inside and releases a deeper creativity inside of you. And it's more pure. You know, I hate looking back just like you do maybe with your sermons, you know, that I just paid attention so much to like, oh my gosh, are we going to win the Grammy? And how many records did we sell? And it just, uh, it wore me out. And now I've got, I think, more energy, good energy, to be about what I need to be about and not be worried about what people think about me. So that's a good place. So that's the biggest thing. But yeah, pride's the root of everything that's wrong with the world. And I just hate that I just paid attention to all that stuff growing up. But you know what? I think you're young. You just, exactly. You're, and You don't know any different. You don't know any different. No. And that's what I mean by sermons is I looked at what I thought was important and what I enjoyed talking about or digging into. And now I look at a group of, you know, whether it's 20 people or a thousand people in a room and go, God, they need to hear from your word, not me. Yeah. And your word is timeless and eternal and, mm-hmm. and substantial. And I think to your point, it doesn't matter what people think about us. Right. I think you got to get to over 50 to get there. Yes. I don't yeah. think you can learn it any other way than, you know, years and mistakes and, um, and good people around you. Tell you the truth, yeah. yeah. My wife being one of them. So. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, Cindy <laughs> tells me things from time to time. Give me a story about Christmas, about glory, about surrounded. Give me a story, something that really was meaningful to you or, you know, this kind of illustrates where I am today. Kind of an open-ended. Ooh, I could tell you stories for days. Um <laughs> I think probably, I mean, I think you're going to automatically gravitate towards the latest thing that's happened in your life, you know, 
that was significant, and I think probably one of the most significant things that's happened to me in my life. And it spurred on this record, and it spurred on this thing happened at Bridgestone, and I don't think it's ended. I still think it's going on, and I think it's going to go on for a long time. I was making this pop record called A Million Lights, and I was really excited about it. I'm going to make another pop record, and I had these, the election, and people being so awful to each other on social media, and all kinds of stuff, and the opiate, you know, the whole drug thing, kids dying, and suicide, all that stuff kind of spurred that whole thing on. So I was really focused on that whole record. And then in the middle of that record, somebody called me, and I still cannot think who it was. And But it just came out, it's going, hey, I just felt, I think you're supposed to go read this Amos 5 passage again. And I think you need to go read it from Eugene Peterson's version, the message. So I did. I'd read it before, and then I read it. It's the whole thing where God's a little upset with his people. And he just says, you know, I'm tired of your, your services. I'm tired of your production. And I'm tired of your music. Turn it off. Well, that really got my attention, you know. And then... He says, what I'm really looking for more than anything is I'm looking for justice to roll like a waterfall. That's a paraphrase. And it just rocked my world. It just like completely, and it made me sort of probably crawled up like a baby in a corner and just thought, man, have I gotten this whole thing wrong? Am I really doing what I'm called to do? It just made me reexamine everything. And then I started getting visions and revelations and dreams about justice and what does justice look like? And so... Started getting these dreams about it, making a worship record and releasing that record a week after the pop record, which is insane. And what does that look like? Color and what would God's house look like if we could look inside God's house? What would it look like? Who would be there? You know, every tribe, every nation, every color, every race. And I started to formulate this whole surrounded idea in my head, in my heart. And we all got together, made that record at the factory. I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Hey. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. This is how I find my it was an unprecedented night. Something shifted. And we had as much color as we could there. We had lots of color at Bridgestone, you know. And I just think it is a model for something that's very significant into ushering in the return of the Lord. And I, I say that boldly, but I say that knowing that that has very little to do with me. I'm not trying to sort of take credit and lead some, you know. Movement. Yeah, some movement. And I think about that scripture. You're the theologian here, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, But I think there's only one place in the Word where God commands a blessing. It's when His church is unified. So I think we've had these couple events that were very, very unified. And I think God really smiled on us and stirred something in many of us. And people are still talking about it. So... What does that hold for the coming days and months and years? I have no idea. I just know something very significant happened. And I'm ready to carry the torch if that's me, if I'm supposed to pass it on to somebody and mentor the young kid and let him do it, then let it be so. So that's exciting. And to be stirred inside and just feel like you have this anticipation that something really is coming, that's exciting to me. And if nobody believes it, that's not going to discourage me because I believe it. 
and I believe something is shifting. And we all know it's going to happen. We all know that this movement, you know, this, was it the third, fourth great awakening, whatever that is, it all talks about in the last days that something will shift and we might possibly be in that time. And I certainly hope it happens before I die. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. So uh, let it be so. And I just, that's what I pray. I just pray that a lot. God, I think something happened. What do you want to do? Don't let me miss it. And just bring it. Bring it. Because we need it. I mean, we're in trouble. I mean, the world's in trouble. And we're ready for a shake. And we're ready for a mighty awakening. So sorry for the long story, but that's what's stirring inside of me. Other than doing all the things that I feel like I'm supposed to be doing better and feeding the poor and trying to pour my life into people who are least fortunate and not be selfish. Michael A.B. Smith, thanks for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? you can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.